tonight we are going to simply talk about how to show off that love. I believe that God did a work in your hearts. I believe chains were broken. I believe that sin was defeated and unearthed and dragged into the light. I believe that God was victorious in that moment. And here's the deal. We need to take that moment. We need to take that victory and we need to take the love that God showed us and we need to become a reflection of that love to the rest of the world. Now, we can't hold on to it for ourselves. We can't. Like, listen, there's a lost and a dying world that is out there, and they are in desperate need of, of a Savior. Because why? Because their eternity is on the line. You guys have people that are at your homes. You have people that are at your schools. You have people that you know and you love that if they do not come into a, 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 a salvation relationship with Jesus Christ, then they are da- bound and destined for an eternal hell. And listen, I'm not afraid to talk about that because that's the wages of sin. But Jesus, Jesus washes away our sins. Jesus forgives us of all of our sins. Jesus loves us so much and so desperately that he is willing to take on the weight of the cross and the weight of all of our sins, even though he lived an innocent life. Man, I don't know, but every time I think about it, I want to shout it from the mountaintops. I want to witness to everybody that I possibly can on the streets. But something has gone defunct. Something has gone wrong. Something has distracted us. Like, here's the deal. It's, it's not right. It's not fair to have this life-changing, incredible experience. Like, it is not okay to have this knowledge of who God is and and what God has done and and keep it to ourselves. In other words, it's it's not enough to receive the love. We've got to share the love as well. So my goal tonight is to answer just two big questions. The first is this, why should I share the love? Why? Why should I share the love, right? And the second question, after I convince you of why you should share the love, is to tell you how you should share the love. So let's just jump right into this and answer the first big question. Why should I share the love? Well, I think we got into it a little bit, right? Because, well, Jesus did something incredible for you, right? I would like to think that if I were to give any single one of you a $100 bill in this place, if you didn't pocket it for yourself... And I told you, hey, do you know somebody who could use 100 bucks just to go and buy some groceries? Do you know somebody who could use 100 bucks and it would just absolutely bless them? Do you know somebody who could use 100 bucks to put gas in their car so that they can get to work this week? Do you know somebody who, like, I'm sure that you guys could think of, like, a list of, like, 20 or 30 different people on your street, on your block, in your neighborhood who could use that $100 bill. And you're like, bro, like, seriously, me, I can't right now. You got 100 bucks because is that, is that a thing? Right. Like you would love that you would easily go out and take that hundred dollar bill and you would give that to anybody and you would just love to see them light up. Guys, let me tell you something. How much more the love of Jesus Christ? How much more the gospel to tell people on your block, in your city, in your schools about the love of Jesus Christ? Why should you share the love? Listen, in order to answer that question, I think what we need to do is we need to go all the way back to the book of Genesis 126, where it says this. It says, let us. Do you know why God said us? Because he wasn't alone. 
Jesus and the Holy Spirit were there as well. Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Everybody say, like us. Right? This is an identity statement. God created you and I to be like him. Him. Who is the Holy Spirit and Jesus, the triune God. Right? This word like is not physical, though, because God is spirit. Right? Like, God isn't talking necessarily about a physical DNA. He is not saying that he is going to make you like him. But what he is going to say is he's going to make you uh, like, like a triune being, like a part of his character is as well. It isn't physical, but rather it means character. So what we need to understand is that we are made, we are created to image or be a reflection of God. It is hardwired into us. It is a part of our original design that as God is glorified, we should be the main instruments of his glory. That we should live our lives devoted to him. We talked a little bit about this last night. That our times, our talents, our gifts, our abilities, everything that we put our minds and our hearts to have got to be going in the direction of bringing glory to God. It's hardwired into us. In other words, when we are showing off the characteristics of God in our lives, it literally awakens our purpose. It speaks to our souls. That's why when you are showing the characteristics of God, it awakens something deep within you. You feel good about what it is you're doing. You feel like you are making progress. Listen, it's because it goes to your original purpose to show, to image, to mirror who God is and what God is like to a world who does not know who God is and does not know what God is like. Now let's flip it over to 1 John 4, not John 4, 1 John 4, right by the end of the Bible. So we can fully answer this question. 1 John 4, 8 says this, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. You know what the Bible doesn't say there? That love is love. Because that doesn't make sense. That means you can make love whatever you want it to mean. But God did not intend for you to just take love and just say, hey, I'm going to use this word as kind of like a power verb, and I'm going to be able to use it to build up my kingdom and justify my lusts and my desires because love is love. No, love is not love. God is love. He sets what up what love is. He's the one who puts the boundaries. He's the one who defines and gives the characteristics of love. And it goes on to say this in 1 John 4, 12. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, then God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us, right? So here's the big idea. Why should we share the love? Because we were created to be a reflection of God. Our lives are like a canvas to the lost and dying world. And if God is love, and if we are calling ourselves Christians, then we have got to be a reflection of God's love. So when other people see you, they are, rece they are seeing a reflection of what God is really like. 
Are you guys with me tonight? You guys feeling what I'm talking about right now? Okay. This is what Paul is desperately trying to remind Christians, specifically tonight in the Corinthian church. We just read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's called the love chapter, but what's really kind of ironic about 1 Corinthians, the entire book of 1 Corinthians, where the love chapter can be found, is that this is actually a letter of rebuke from Paul to the Corinthian church. If you were to actually read all of 1 Corinthians, you would see that Paul has got a very serious and a very urgent tone in his writing. He's letting the Corinthians know that they are failing at being an image of God. What they are putting on the canvas of their lives is the opposite of what God's love is. So that's why he felt compelled to write 1 Corinthians 13. It wasn't just to say, uh, it wasn't a worship, it was a teaching moment. He wasn't saying, hey, isn't it great that God is patient, God is kind? He's saying, hey, Corinthians, unless you forgot, God is patient. So be patient with one another. And be patient with people that don't know Jesus Christ yet because when you are being impatient with them, you are painting a picture that God is impatient and it is driving people away. See, the Corinthian church, once Paul left, started losing their ever-loving minds. Crazy stuff started happening in the, the Corinthian church. They started sinning in wild and creative ways, and they started justifying it. And all the while, the rest of Corinth is looking at the Corinthian church, and they're like, these people are crazy. This is what God is like? No, thank you. Look at all of the infighting. Look at all of the bickering. Look at all of the strife that they have. Look at all of the jealousy that they have. Look at all of the anger. Look at all of the irritability. They don't even forgive each other, and we're supposed to be like that? We're supposed to think this is some, like, great movement? We're supposed to think that this is some great religion? No, thank you. And so Paul hears about this. It's coming back to him, and he's like, I've got to write them a letter and remind them how to get back into their ever-loving minds, right? So let me give you some context. 1 Corinthians 13, that's, that's a huge portion of rebuke. First, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians is a letter of correction. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, and I'm paraphrasing a lot of this here, I'm frustrated with you because you are calling yourselves followers of the Christ, but you are treating each other like crap. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul calls the believers there immature. He, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is literally exposing the church for turning a blind eye to sin. And he is upset because they are too busy trying to protect their reputation and their comfort to be brokenhearted over the sin in their very midst. He says, listen, I know it's uncomfortable to confront sin, but you have to get over it. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul starts asking, like, are you stupid? And again, that's the Chris version. Don't you see what you're doing? All of your bickering and all of your fighting and all of your sin and your behavior, it is a blot, he says. It is a stain on the community of Christ. And what you are doing is dangerous because when people see you acting like that, they want nothing to do with you or your Christ. 
And eventually we get back to 1 Corinthians 13. Listen to these words now with a new set of ears, understanding the context. If I could speak Corinthians, all the languages of earth and angels, but I didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and I was great at being religious and if I understood all of God's secret plans and I showed up to church every single Sunday and I possessed all of this biblical knowledge and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but I actually didn't love people, I would be nothing. Hey, Corinthians, like if I gave everything that I had to the poor and I was just putting on a big show of it and I was just giving all of this money to speed the light, right? Like, like if, I, if I gave everything I had and I sacrificed my body, like I could boast about it, sure, I could even get a $100 t-shirt, but if I didn't actually love other people, I would have gained nothing. In other words, you can talk like a Christian, you can have a knowledge of God, you can even do Christian things, but if you aren't actually going out and loving a hurting and dying world, if you are not showing the kindness and the patience and the mercy of God, if you aren't showing love, then you are pushing a people away from God's kingdom and not bringing them in. And this is what Paul is so frustrated about. I don't think it's a coincidence that the apostle Paul uses the imagery of a noisy gong or, or a clanging cymbal because I think Paul knew even then that anything comes out of a hypocrite's mouth is annoying and frustrating. So why do we love to show people what God really looks like? To show people all around the world the canvas of our life, on the canvas of our life, what God really looks like. And here's, here's where we're going to start getting, getting into like some, some of the how do we love people. And this is where Paul starts giving instruction. It's very practical in 1 Corinthians 13, right? And here's what you need to know. When we were in 1 John, what did it say about God? God is love, right? God is love. And the, and the word there, the root word for God is, is, is love is what? It's, it's agape. It's this agape love. It's the love of God. It's the characteristic of God. The same root word for love is found here in 1 Corinthians 13. It's agape. So literally, it can be it can be switched out where it says love is patient, love is kind. It's actually saying God is patient. God is kind. Love is patient. God is. Love is. God is. Because God is love. Is God is love. Is God is love. Is patient. Is kind. So when we're kind, we are showing a characteristic of God to a lost and dying world. You understand? So this is Paul being extremely practical to the Corinthian church. And he's saying, look, if you want to show the world what, what Christ is like, then you have to start acting Christ-like. Right? So if you are going to, at the top of the canvas of your life, have Christian, right, which is Christ follower, 
then you have to start possessing some of the qualities of Christ. And again, it's progress over perfection. Understand that the entire time I am preaching this message, I don't want you guys to feel overwhelmed by some of these characteristics here because I want you to know full well that Jesus Christ has died for our sins and can turn this around in a moment, but you have to surrender to him. This is Paul's practical list of saying, hey, this is what you need to work on, Corinthians. This is the list. This is how you need to act in order to show the world what Jesus Christ is like, okay? So here we go. Let's just break this down line by line. What is the picture we are painting with our lives? The Bible says that love is patient and kind, so God is patient and kind. The problem is that the Corinthians were impatient and unkind. So the question that I have for you tonight, Excel, is this. When the world sees you, do they see Christ-like love? Or do they see someone who is too good? And mean. There is nowhere where this is on display more than in your car if you're a driver in Chicago. Can I just, oh, in the name of Jesus. There is nowhere where this is on display. Actually, I'm going to take that back. It's not actually in Chicago. It's in the suburbs. It's actually not in Chicago. It's, it's, it's the crazy people who live in southern Illinois who don't know how to drive to save their lives. Can I just get, oh, listen, I've almost spent more time out of Chicago than in Chicago, and the thing that I miss the most is actually people knowing how to drive. People driving with a sense of urgency, like trying to like actually make a light, like they actually have some place to go. Living in southern Illinois makes me absolutely insane. It makes me so crazy. Like, people are so slow. They just have conversations everywhere you go. Like, here's the thing that irritates me the most. Like, if you're at a light and somebody's in front of you and they're not going, what do you do in Chicago? But you honk at them, right? And it's not even an aggressive thing. It's just like, hey, move, right? You know? If you do that in southern Illinois, a little, even like a little toot-toot, like a really nice, you can make it sound as nice as you possibly can. People are just like, ah, you might as well stick your finger out the window and just wave your number one at them. Like, they take it so offensively. You can't even go to a grocery store. Like, you'll be in line at the checkout, and the little old lady at the checkout counter is going to have a conversation with everybody. Just go ahead and understand because everybody in small towns knows everybody. So you're at the line in the checkout, and like, how are your kids? How's your husband's hemorrhoids? And I'm like, ma'am, I've got groceries, and my ice cream is melting in the name of Jesus. Scan and go. Scan and go. Like, we don't need to have these conversations, right? Like, but here's the thing. Like, you can cuss somebody out for being a terrible driver. You could be, like, flipping the bird and have a Christian bumper sticker on your car, Right? Like you cut somebody off in traffic and then it just gives them a perfect view of that sticker and you're like, Jesus loves you, ah, you know? Or maybe you're just like always a jerk, right? Like, you know, you're, you're, you're just unkind. You like to pick on people. You like to belittle people. You like to bully people. You like to bully people? Can I just tell you something? Bullies don't put people down. They actually bring people down. You understand what I mean by that? A bully isn't somebody who isn't above somebody trying to put them down. A bully is somebody who's below somebody and they're trying to bring them down. 
and it's because some hurt, it's because of some wound, and I'm not saying that that we don't love these people, but please understand, don't fall victim to this kind of bullying. I know it can be hard. I know it can be oppressive. But if you're in here today and you are a bully, and let me tell you something. You, like, you, you can't be bullying people. You can't be horrible to people. You can't be terrible to people. You can't be horrible and terrible to people online and, and talk about them and gossip about them and just trash their reputation and still call yourself a Christian. I don't care what they look like. I don't care where they come from. I don't care what color they are. I don't care how much money they have. I don't care what they smell like. I don't care what they're into. God loves them. He sent his son to die for them. And when you're a bully, you're acting like some kind of gatekeeper. As Christians, who we make time for displays to the world who God makes room for. Do you hear that? Is that what we're putting on the canvas of our life? Because who we make time for, who we love. And listen, I'm telling you guys, I I can be just as guilty of this. There are people that bother me. There are people that annoy me so, so badly sometimes. And I can be impatient with people. Because I feel like I have something better going on or I feel like I'm too good for them. But here's what I want you to hear. Again, I'm going to say it. Write this down and circle it and underline it. Who we make time for displays on the canvas of our life if we are flying under the banner of Christianity who God makes room for, whether it's intentional or not. The problem is is that God makes room for everybody. But if we think we're too good for some people, then we're displaying that God is too good for some people. And that's why Paul had to remind the Corinthians that love is patient with everybody. Love is kind to everyone. And I know I just gave some heat to bullies in this room, but can I give some heat now? I'm going to be sensitive here, but like, even to those of you who are being bullied, do you know that God loves the person that's bullying you? What does it look like to move so mightily in the confidence of Jesus Christ that even when your enemies are coming after you, you still love and you still depend on Christ so fully and so wholly that you can still bless your enemies and not curse them back. That you can pray for your enemies and not pronounce death on your enemies. I think God's looking for that too, and I know that's a tough ask, but think about that. Next line is this, love is not jealous or proud or boastful. The Corinthians needed to hear this. Why? Because the Corinthians were arrogant. They were arrogant. And what I, what I want to ask you guys is when the world sees you, do they see someone who is insecure? Does the world see someone who is insecure? This means that we are not content with Christ. Because Christ gives us all the security because he is sovereign over all. Right? My question to you is this. How are you supposed to be a witness to people that Christ is enough if you are always acting like you don't have enough? Right? 
Like, show me what you are jealous of, and I will show you what you put your identity in. Show me what you covet, and I will show you what you worship. Are you a jealous boyfriend or girlfriend? It's because you aren't defined by Christ. You are defined by your need for a relationship with somebody else. Because you are not pulling your value and worth from Christ in that moment. You are now pulling your value and worth from having somebody just being with you and giving you a little bit of extra comfort and making you feel like you're a lovely person who's nice to be around. And you're drawing from that. And that's why it's like, like, like with, with teenagers, when they're broken up with and they're just crushed by it, I don't mean to seem like the insensitive youth pastor, but eventually I'm like, why is this breaking you so badly? I, and I know why. I'm just trying to get the student to admit, oh, it's because I was drawing all of my value and my worth from what that person thought of me. And I'm not saying that it doesn't hurt family. I'm just saying that that person isn't in charge of your value and worth. God has already given you all of your value and worth. Right? Now, let's flip this. It might not be jealousy, but it might be pride that is distorting your witness. This is why jealousy and pride and boasting are all lumped together. They are all part of the same plant, and its roots are insecurity. The prideful and boastful person is usually very loud about how perfect they are in an attempt to distract people from or cover up an imperfection or a hurt they might have. And the problem with that is that is if I'm a Christian and I am always talking and I am always acting like I am perfect, then I am falsely showing in an imperfect world that they have to be perfect to get to God. You need to grow into that one. Listen to this one more time. That if I am acting prideful, if I am being boastful, if I am playing at this religion thing, like I am always perfect, then I am showing an imperfect world that they must become perfect in order to get to God. And that is the opposite of the gospel. The gospel is that we are all imperfect. The gospel says, who can boast? Nobody. Because we were dead in our sins, Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10 is the pocket gospel that says we were helpless. We were dead. We could not raise ourselves up from the dead. It required somebody who had power over death to raise us up for us. So listen, there is no boasting. There is no pride. There is no like, I am the greatest ever as a Christian. I have got this all down pat. Because what you're doing is you are projecting to an imperfect world that they need to be perfect in order to come to Christ. Listen, one of the most powerful things that you can be, listen here, what does being secure in Christ look like? Actually look like? It means being able to confess like we did last night. It means having vulnerability. It means making Christ accessible. It means that you have established accountability in your life. You have connected yourself to the promises of God. Listen, a powerful way to win people to Christ is to show satisfaction in Christ. Amen? I'm just going to keep moving on here. Love does not demand its own way. And the reason that Paul wrote this is because the Corinthians were being selfish. They were being selfish. They were hoarding things. They weren't giving to the poor. 
They were trying to demand their own way. There were factions of the church that were biting and, and bickering and infighting. When the world sees you, do they see someone who only cares about themselves? God is love. And if anybody has the right to demand his own way, it's God. And God does demand his own way because he has the right to, right? Yet we see a very different view of the humility of God, even though he does demand his own way and he has the right to demand his own way. We see this different view of God in Jesus, don't we? He says, I did not come to be served, but to serve. Some of you in here tonight are begging for your families to get saved, but you throw a fit about taking out the garbage. <laughs> you know what I mean? You won't clean your room. I mean, like selfishness says what I need is more important than what you need. So you have friends that need to hear about how Jesus laid down his life for them, but they will never uh, hear about how Jesus laid down his life for them because you are unwilling to lay down your reputation to tell them. That's selfish, family. That's costly. And what you're doing in that moment is you are taking a price tag and you are writing whatever is more important than their salvation to you in that moment, and you are placing it on their soul. In that moment, selfishness made your reputation more important and more valuable than your soul's and your school's revival. Learn to serve and learn to love the least of these. What would it look like, some of you who even go to the same school, to work together to get kids who are the least of these into Excel to be loved? What would it look like for you guys to start serving them, to start laying down your reputation? Jesus went to the poor. Jesus went to the outcast. Jesus didn't worry about his reputation as a religious leader. Jesus just did the will of God. He went to people who needed his love, and he served them, and he served them, church. It goes on to say this, love is not irritable. <laughs> love is not irritable. And the Corinthians needed to hear this because they were irritable. They were constantly, constantly clapping back at each other, right? Constantly. When the world sees you, do they see somebody who is grumpy? Right? I know I'm using a cute word there, but it has serious implications. It does. It does, right? Like some of you, before you get your coffee in the morning, mm, <laughs> raise your hand right now if you're like just awful before coffee. See, nobody wants to admit it right now because, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to go in on you. I am too kind of, all right? Listen, I'll preach it myself, okay? 
You know, how many of y'all, like, you just, you, you, just, you just need a minute in the morning to wake up before mom and dad start making some, like, demands of you? Have you got your schoolwork done? Where are your shoes? Do you have your bag ready? Are you going to catch the bus on time? And some of y'all, it's like a teapot that's ready to boil over, and you're like, say one more thing. Say, 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 say one more thing to me, right? Like some of you, man, you just get nasty. You just get bitter. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, it's a witness, family. It's a witness. People see you coming and you got that nasty face on. Don't touch me. Better keep off me. I'll knock you out. I will cut you. Do not talk to me today. I woke up on the wrong side of the bed. And you're just like grouchy. You're just grumpy sometimes. And it's a witness. What irritable Christians do is they paint a picture of an irritable God. No, 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 hold on. Like, like it's easy to set him off. Like, it's so easy to set God off. Oh, you're a Christian and you can't, you can't have patience. You just got to be irritable all of the time. It, it, like, listen, we do not serve an irritable God. We serve a patient God. The Bible says that God waits for us. He loves us. Like, God literally can come back at any time and start judging the world, like right now. But the Bible says in the book of Romans that he doesn't want to do that. He's withholding his wrath because he loves us and he is patient with us. And he's waiting for us to come to the knowledge of Christ. That's good news. You can clap for that. Here's what I see in nature. Here's what I see in nature, students, is that the animals that are the most irritable are the ones who are wounded or are protective. Maybe if you find, some, you find yourself being irritable, you might have some unhealed wounds that need to be dealt with, or you're protecting or guarding something that you don't want other people to get close to. A lot of the time, you will use your attitude to push people away because you are afraid if you let people get too close, that, that will hit that wound, or they will figure out your secret. Listen, maybe instead of pushing people away, why don't you let them get close? Why don't you let the, the youth ministry family of Excel start to minister to you, to start to treat those wounds? Why don't you let Jesus Christ in, who is our divine surgeon? Listen, vulnerability creates accessibility. None of us have it all together, and that's okay because Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. You don't have to have it all together. You don't have to behave before you belong. You just don't. What I love about Excel is that you can belong first. And then you learn to believe. And then we'll start to work on the behave part. But you guys have it all backwards sometimes. You think that you have to learn how to behave so that you can believe and then belong. Like that's the opposite. That's not what I see in this family. Are you willing to accept people? Are you willing to be vulnerable with each other? Are you willing to minister to each other's wounds? Are you willing to confess what's really going on? Let people get close. Stop being irritable. Finally, listen, we're going we're gonna to keep moving along here, okay? Love keeps no record of wrongs. The Corinthians were unforgiving. When the world looks at you, do they see a hypocrite? Do they see a hypocrite on the canvas of your life uh, under the banner of Christianity? And here's, you know, the thing. The, the word hypocrite actually comes from uh, the name Hippocrates, 
Hippocrates was an actor, and it became the name for actor. So when we say hypocrite, it actually has roots in somebody who's just playing, somebody who's just acting a role but isn't really that in real life. Here's the act that we are putting on sometimes, that we can accuse somebody of not measuring up to our standards as if we're the one who sets the standard. The, the only perfect and sinless one is who? Jesus Christ. And he made a way for everyone to have access to the Father, and we do not get to play doorman. Well, do you know what that person did? Well, listen, hold on. Jesus can say, no, but I know what you did. <laughs> I know what's in your heart right now. Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So when you point your finger at somebody else, old school line, you got three pointing back at you, don't you? When we say there isn't room at the cross for certain individuals because of how awful they are, listen, we are in the same breath minimizing the power that God has over sin. When we're saying, hey, I'm good enough to get to the cross, but not you, that's hypocrisy. That's hypocrisy fleshed out, and it's damaging, and it's destructive. And to be honest with you, if you do a, gurg a, a gurgle, if you do a, a Google search, that's the caffeine talking. If you do a Google search right now, why are Christians so? The number one hit you will get is hypocritical. I just did I just did it just to double check myself, just to fact check myself. I just did it 30 minutes before I got up here and spoke. Mm. Let's just keep moving on, okay? Love does not rejoice in evil. The Corinthian church needed to be told this because they were okay coexisting with sin. When the world sees the canvas of your life, do they even see a difference? Do they even see a difference? In 2 Corinthians, it says that light can have no fellowship with the darkness. And I get it, the struggle is real, family. Like even the Apostle Paul would, would talk about this and readily admit this, okay? He says this in Romans 1.1. Paul, I, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, and I am called to be an apostle and set apart, consecrated for the gospel of God, right? But then just seven chapters later, he says this in Romans 7.19. He says, for I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. This is not a statement made by somebody who is okay with his sin. This is a statement made by a man who knew he had a responsibility to be an example to the lost, and he hated that sin made him less effective at it. Purity, holiness, is it evident in what I watch, what I listen to, what I'm doing on the internet, how I'm interacting with my friends, the jokes that I'm laughing at, my family, how I handle responsibilities, how I dress, how I communicate, etc. And I get it. There's going to be some of you that are like, that's legalism. Here come the rules, right? It's just a bunch of rules. Again, you're going to tell me how I can act. You can tell me how I dress. Listen, no, what I'm telling you is that everything that you are doing is being put on the canvas of your life. Is it a reflection of the love of Jesus Christ or is it not? 
Listen, here's what I would tell you. Legalism is a requirement. Holiness is a response. So when you sit here and you start barking about legalism, you need to know that Jesus Christ opened the door wide for every single one of you guys to be saved. And we are not coming to church motivated by legalism. We are not doing the things that we are doing because of legalism. We strive for holiness as a response to God who says, be holy as I am holy. Because we are a canvas to the world. Love never gives up. Never gives up. Love never loses faith. It is always hopeful and it endures through every circumstance. I'm just going to move here now. 1 John 4.12. We're going to start closing this out. It says this. And let me just remind you of it. It says this. It says, no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, then God lives in us. And his love is brought to full expression in us. Here's what that means, family. It's not just about being Christ-like. It's about showing the world what Christ is like. Does anybody in here know what an ambassador is? Right? An ambassador. An ambassador is the highest official rank that can be given to a diplomat or a representative from another country. Right? So like if the ambassador from France were in America visiting the White House, everything that ambassador from France said or did would be viewed as an extension of the French government. It would be as almost as though the country of France were speaking every time this man or woman who was an ambassador of France opened their mouth. If they if they offended the United States government some way, it would be looked at as an offense not from that person. It would be looked at as an offense from France, right? An ambassador speaks and acts on behalf of the one who appointed them to that ambassadorship. There are even these things called brand ambassadors, right? People that will go around and they will pump up and market different companies. Their actions are a direct representation of their company. So these brand ambassadors are chosen with the highest level of care. This is why Nike and Adidas are always battling to get their shoes and their brand on the most elite athletes in the world. Why? Because if these elite athletes are wearing their brand, then other people will see them and be like, I want to wear that brand as well. Because if Michael Jordan wears Nike, then I want to be like Mike, then I wear Nike. Right? Stick with me. I'm going somewhere with this family. There is this popular verse that can be found in the Bible. It says this. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though Christ were making his appeal through us. We are Christ's ambassadors. Selected with care. To market the brand of Christianity. And then it goes on to say this, we implore you on Christ's behalf, please be reconciled to God. And I am going to give you one guess as to what church, to what group of believers Paul wrote that verse to. Who was it? The Corinthians. He wrote that to the Corinthians. 
as a reminder to them that their life is a canvas that as ambassadors of Christ, you need to be patient, you need to be kind, you need to be long-suffering, you need to be forgiving other people. You cannot be irritable. You need to be profitable, you need to be charitable, you need to be loving in everything that you do, in everything that you say. I'll get, Listen, this is why Paul is being so tough on the Corinthian church, and it's why I'm preaching this to you tonight, Excel. Because if you call yourself a Christian, but, 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 but you're too good for people, and you're walking around with insecurity when you have a God who gives you all of the security you could possibly need by securing your eternity in heaven. If you're mean to people, if you're just bullying people all of the time, if you only care about yourself, if you're grumpy all of the time and painting this picture of an irritable God, if you're a hypocrite, if, if, you're, if nobody can even tell that there's a difference by being a Christian, then here is the, the really big deal. You, you, you are not just showing what you are like. Family, the biggest thing that you need to realize is that you are also showing what Jesus Christ is like. No, 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 listen. And the worship team can start making their way back up somehow. But this is why this is so important. This is why I'm preaching to you guys so passionately tonight. Because if we are ambassadors, then the canvas of our life is a direct representation of who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ does. And listen, I cannot show the world a grumpy image of God. I, I do not think that Jesus Christ is a hypocrite. I do not think Jesus Christ only cared about himself. I do not think Jesus Christ was some insecure, small God. I don't think God was mean. I don't think God is like some kid on an anthill with a magnifying glass looking to just zap people who screw up. I don't think God was too good for us. No way. Not when he stepped down from heaven and into the world and split time in half for a sinner like me. That's not the God I represent. And it's not the God we should be representing either. And this is why we need to take these things seriously. And listen, again, I'm not trying to beat you guys up at all. This is just a very practical teaching that it helps you guys understand we need to take an inventory of our life. Just, just take a self-evaluation. Start asking yourself tonight, man, am I, am I calling myself a Christian? And am, I, am I bullying people at my school? Am I calling myself a Christian? Am I, am I walking around with insecurity? Am I calling myself a Christian and, and being like super jealous? Showing that maybe Christ isn't enough. So, if eternity is on the line, we cannot let this be what pushes people away. Not this. So what happened to the Corinthian church? Did they get it right? Did they finally turn things around? Well, I was reading to you a lot out of 1 Corinthians, and here's the good news. There's a 2 Corinthians. <laughs> There's a 2 Corinthians. <laughs> Paul writes another letter to the Corinthians after he sends one of his boys, Titus, right? Titus, think like if you're one of Joey's seniors, that was like Titus to Paul. 
So it would be like P. Joey sending you back and being like, hey, go check on that small group and make sure that they've got their heads screwed on straight for me, right? And this is what Paul does. He says, Titus, remember that time we were in, in, in Corinth? I need you to go back there and I need you to make sure that the church there is actually getting this right again. I sent a pretty strong letter to them and I need you to go and check on them and then come back and find me in Macedonia and, and give me a report. And so Titus does this, and he comes back to Paul with a report, and that prompts Paul to write 2 Corinthians after he hears if the Corinthian church responded to this first letter. And can I just say something? When Paul wrote this first letter to Corinthians, he wrote it as, as a gesture of love to them. Let me just preach to you just for, just for one second here. A couple of months ago, my mom found out that she had an aortic valve stenosis. What that means is that there was an artery in her heart that was literally constricting, and she was very, very at risk for a heart attack, instant death. We took her into the doctor, and the doctor said, here's the deal, you have this stenosis and your aortic valve, I need to cut you open, I need to cut that valve out of you, and I need to replace it with a new valve. I literally had somebody telling my mom in front of me that I am going to cut her open. But those words are very different coming from a surgeon than, say, a mugger on the street. There are some people that mean to harm you, and there are other people that mean to wound you for your good. And if there is sin that is existing in you, then you are going to have leaders in your life that are going to be like surgeons that are going to sit you down and they are going to say, listen, I need to wound you. I need to cut you open and I need to remove this cancer from your life. I need to remove this thing that's affecting your heart from your life. And it's going to hurt. But the pain is going to be a good pain because it's going to be a healing pain. And you're going to come out of this bigger and better and stronger than before. And I think sometimes in the church, we avoid these wounds because we think we're going to scare people away from the hurt. Sometimes you need to go through a little bit of hurt to become stronger. The Bible talks on repeat about pruning and about growing and about grafting and about cutting and about making you stronger. It's a process that we all go through, and it's a chiseling. It's a refinement that happens in each and every single one of our lives to make us more capable. And it's done out of love, and this is what Paul is doing to the people. So Titus comes back, and he gives this report. And I want to read this to you guys out of 2 Corinthians 7 starting in chapter 5. It says this, When we arrived in Macedonia, Corinthians, there was no rest for us. For we faced conflict from every direction, with battles on the outside and fear on the inside. But God who encourages those, but God encourages those who are discouraged. Encouraged, and God encouraged me by the arrival of Titus. His presence was a joy, but so was the news he brought of the encouragement he received from you. When he told us about how you longed to see me and how sorry you were for what happened and how you acted. I was filled with joy. Listen to Paul's words here. He says this, I am not sorry that I sent that first letter to you. Though I was sorry at first because I knew it was painful for you to hear for a little while. 
Now I'm glad that I sent it. Not because it hurt you, but because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. It was the kind of sorrow that God wanted his people to have. So you were not harmed by us in any way. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and it results in salvation. There is no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. Students, here's what I want to tell you. Listen, there is a sorrow that comes from God and it is good. It's a sorrow that is caused by our sin and the sin in the world. And it's a sorrow that creates a monument and it helps us remember. Listen, I am not talking about guilt. I am not talking about condemnation. I'm just talking about a kind of sorrow of who we were and what we could have done to reach more people. But God doesn't leave us there. He uses that sorrow to turn things around, and he used sorrow to turn the Corinthian church around, and they became one of the most powerful provinces. They became one of the most powerful churches for the kingdom of God that we've known. The Corinthian church did incredible things. There was sorrow that led to repentance, and then the Corinthians started allowing the love of Jesus to change them And over time, here's what happened. Through the process of sorrow that led them to repentance, they started becoming sorrowful about their selfishness. And as they became sorrowful about their selfishness, they went through this thing called the process of sanctification, which means you become less like the world and you start becoming more like Jesus Christ. The Corinthians went through the process of sanctification so they became less like the world and more like Jesus Christ. Over time, little by little, God started erasing different sections of the heart that, that, that made him look terrible to the rest of the people. And finally, people started seeing the true love of Jesus Christ. They, beca- they started becoming better ambassadors. And listen, it wasn't perfect. It wasn't perfect. But God began a work in them. And then here's what happened. As the people in the area of Corinth started seeing the progress of the church, they started being drawn into the Corinthians. Look, here's the difference. When we have a little bit of sin that we're working on, that little bit of sin that we're working on actually starts to minister to people because they look at us and they say, oh, you're working on something. And it's working. Wait a minute. You're not perfect. You struggle with this too, but it looks like you're making progress. Hey, I want to follow you. Hey, I want to get on the board with that. I've tried everything. I've tried self-help. I've tried self-talk. I've tried just giving into it. And I want to get rid of this thing in my life. But it looks like you're making an advancement. And, and listen, it's, it's the imperfections that give accessibility to Jesus Christ. He shines through the cracks. I want everybody in here to stand to your feet. We're going to respond in three different ways. And I'm gonna have my wife come up and some of the leaders come up who have some of the different cards and stuff ready. If you can start getting that stuff ready, that would be fantastic. My wife is going to be putting down some small cards. Let me have one of these, babe. 
And what I want you guys to do is I want you to come up and I want you to get one of these small cards. If you have a pen, use it. If you don't have a pen, you can borrow it from somebody when one becomes available. Or you can use one of these markers when they become available. And on this small card, what I want you to do is I want you to write down a characteristic of Christ or multiple characteristics of Jesus Christ that you would like to be uh, working on on the canvas of your life. This represents your canvas, your personal canvas. What do you want God to shine through the most in you? It could be one thing. It could be two things. It could be something that you need to work on. Are you mean? Then, then, then say love. I want to show the love of Jesus Christ. So you can come and get some of these cards and you can write that down. And I want you to thoughtfully pray about it and consider it. We've got some of these bigger boards up here. And this is what I want you to do with this. On the bigger boards, I want you to write down after God has, has given you a word for your small card, I want you to advance to the bigger board. And the bigger boards represent Excel. I want Excel's canvas to look like this. I want Excel's canvas to have these qualities. And it doesn't necessarily have to be 1 Corinthians 13 qualities. You can put down qualities that led you to Christ, that drew you into Excel, things that you saw in Excel. Maybe you write down family on this. Maybe you write down loving on this. Maybe you write down patient on this. Maybe you write down leadership on this. But on these bigger canvases, you write down what you want Excel to become. And here's the deal. If you write it down on this canvas, you are taking personal responsibility to fight for it. Did you hear that, family? If you write down on this canvas what you want Excel to become, you are saying, I am personally going to be responsible for making sure that that's what it is. So I'll put this one right here. Take some time. The worship team is going to worship. And what I'm actually going to do is I'm going to, can I have the eraser off of that sale? So I'm going to erase the rest of this board, and I'm going to have some of the leaders take this, uh, take this, this uh, easel down with the picture of Jesus on it. And if you want to, you can take some of the markers, some of the expo markers. Do not use these markers Please use the expo markers, and you can write down some of the characteristics of God. Just write down worship to God. You can write down thank you on this thing if you want to. You can write down loving. God, you loved me. You are patient with me. And that, that be an inspiration of what you want to see God doing in your own lives as well. Worship team, go ahead and start playing out so these kids can respond. All over the... All over this place, this is what I'm going to have you guys do. If you have finished writing on your cards, then I'm just going to have you stand up all over this place. And I want to start responding to God in this place. If you still need to come up and write down on any of these canvases what you want Excel to be, if you want to write on the picture of Jesus, who Jesus means to you, then you can worship in this way. But I've just asked the worship team, can you lead us in some songs? Because listen, I know that some of you guys are getting tired, but I don't think God is done with some of you yet. I want you guys to come up here. I want you to start flooding these altars tonight. And I want to see a generation that's desperate for God. Maybe when you come up here, you can start telling God, please work in me, God. 
God, forgive me. Maybe some of you need to repent at the altar tonight and say, God, I'm so sorry. I've been a bully. I've been mean. I've been a hypocrite. I've been grumpy. I've been irritable. I've been lazy. God, help me on the canvas of my life. Show and exhibit the love of Jesus Christ. Come on, students. Where's your passion? Don't go quietly out of here tonight. I want you to lift your hands all over this place. Come on. Lift your hands all over this place. God, we surrender to you. We love you in this place. Let's raise your voices up to God. Let's press into this place tonight. Let's continue to worship. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. Thank you, God.